Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In the sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. My guest today is Dr. Pita Atia. Peter is a data-focused physician and longevity specialist. His new book is called Outlive, The Science and Art of Longevity. Peter and I sat down and had a fascinating conversation about how his perspective on lifespan and health span has evolved over time. We talked about how to preserve cognitive function as we age, ways to optimize our sleep and exercise, and the pain points when it comes to supplements and why he has become more optimistic around them. For me, as well as many others, Peter has become a brilliant resource in the science of longevity and how to use data to make informed decisions about our health and how to live at our fullest potential. So let's get to my conversation with the amazing Peter Atiyah. So when you started kind of thinking about longevity, was was it relatively a new field? Obviously now we hear about this a lot and, yeah, yeah. and you've kind of paved the way in so many ways, but how did you start thinking about longevity as a science? It didn't, it started very, for me personally, just as a my own interest and for my own self, for my own health. So when my daughter was born 15 years ago, I was not doing anything related to medicine. I had left medicine. You were a consultant, right? right. Yeah, at yeah, McKinsey? Yeah. I was working at McKinsey. And, and so, but you know, when she's born, like I'm sure everybody who has a kid can relate, you're sort of thinking, oh, you know, I want to think of, I'm thinking about something a little bit different now. And for me, it was, how do I make sure I don't die prematurely of a heart attack like <laughs> every man in my family has? So I really dug in very deep to the, to the topic of cardiovascular disease. And so I just became really obsessed. And that hadn't been your concentration? No, I had trained in cancer surgery. Wow, So okay. I, I knew nothing about cardiovascular disease. And 
the deeper I got into that and the more interested I got into that, I, you know, my interest expanded into, okay, well, once you figure out all the things to do to minimize your risk of heart disease, you should probably figure out how to minimize your risk of cancer and minimize your risk of dementia and all of those other things. Did you stack rank them in terms of like? No, now I would look back and I think I have a way that I think about this problem in general, like which to is? look at everybody. Well, which is basically there's like seven big risks to everybody's longevity. There are threats to your lifespan and health span. And I think for everybody, we should want to kind of rank order them so that we know how to prioritize our efforts against them. But at the time I was not thinking, I, didn't, I just didn't have the insight to even think that way. And then I think it kind of coalesced more, probably by about 2012 is when I'm really starting to think about this in a more structural way. That's when I'm kind of coming back to think about practicing medicine, but in a way that I don't really understand, but somehow applying the tools of nutrition and exercise and pharmacology, never liking the word longevity, because mm -hmm. it's sort of just has a snake oil sense to it. Yeah. And now I think, yeah, you're right. More people are just kind of thinking about it and talking yeah. about it and probably realizing that if you don't have your health, your a lot of the other stuff doesn't matter so much. Yeah. And so it's interesting too, because I've observed in the last couple of decades that the way people are thinking about sort of having autonomy and agency over their longevity, their wellness, their health, right? It's it's become this, I mean, you see the consumer and how interested they are in that idea, right? That they personally have the power to impact outcomes with whether it's longevity, whether it's with, you know, managing an autoimmune or whatever. So I think we've seen this shift where the customer or the patient or whatever is really actively engaging in these ideas and in this information. And is that something that, you know, like as a physician, when patients come in and kind of question, and is that something that you encourage, like the participation of the patient? Oh, for sure. I tell people, if you have a doctor that's not willing to kind of answer questions or provide reasons for why things are being done, that's a red flag. It doesn't mean they're wrong, but it's a red flag. I agree. And so like in terms of the book, First of all, congratulations on your number one New York Times bestseller. Thank you very much. Very exciting. What was the impetus for writing the book? I mean, you are a man who is, you heavily research everything. You have a team of people that you have analysts going through all the data that you're just speaking of. Like, was there a certain point when you thought, okay, this should all be aggregated and like the thesis of the book is this like was there a moment that no it's it's funny actually and our mutual friend plays a role in this right so go back to which one yeah so 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 <laughs> john griffin oh right okay plays a role in the story he's actually a footnote in the book by the way as a result of this so he sends me an email and he says all right i'm turning 50 and i need to start figuring out what's more important cardio or weights that was his email Okay. I respond with a very lengthy diatribe. <laughs> it's got to be at least 2,000 words. <laughs> and I think he was sort of like, <laughs> a word answer would have sufficed here. <laughs> but It was A or B. Yeah, it was A or B. <laughs> and the answer was A and B for the following reasons. Right. 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 And that 2,000 word email, I just got thinking about it. And I was like, you know, I should really... I want to write more about this, but in terms of nutrition and in terms of this and in terms of that. So then I ended up writing 
a paper, a little white paper for myself called the Longevity Manifesto, and it was about ten thousand words. Okay. And I shared it with a few of my friends, and they they were like, "This is great. This is really great." You know, and and eventually at some point somebody said, "You should really you know write a book." Mm. So I think by that point it's like twenty sixteen. 2015 or 2016, and a good friend of mine who had written a number of books introduced me to his agent and said, you, you should go ahead and, you know, so I met her and one thing led to another. And, and then in 2016, the project sort of kicks off in its first phase, which ended up dying, but, but that was the first phase. <laughs> and so like, what is the thesis of the book? I mean, I think the thesis of the book is that your Lifespan and health span are more malleable than you think. Mm -hmm. And that investing in those things now with a very clear view of what the final decade of your life needs to look like is the best way to increase the odds of not only that decade of your life being wonderful, but everything that comes before mm -hmm. it. So what age do we need to start thinking about this stuff? Well. You know, they say the best time to have planted a tree was 10 years ago, and the second best time is today. <laughs> right. So, you know, in, in one way, obviously the best time to think about it is at a very early age. The problem with that is it's hard to find the motivation at a very early age yeah. because, you know, look, if you're 20 years old, it's really hard to get excited about being a kick-ass 80-year-old. So... In reality, I think most people don't really start to think mm -hmm. about this until either something, you know, there's a crisis mm -hmm. with their health early in life, or they start to watch people around them who they care about, especially if they're related to them. You know, you watch yeah. a parent go through something, you watch a parent die, and you realize, well, A, that's just, you know, a big wake up call in terms of becoming an adult, right? Yeah. And then on top of that, you think, well, gosh, if my mom died or my dad died or my uncle died or grandparent died, I'm, I'm built out of part of that genetic material. Does that mean that I'm in, you know, that the, that the same is going to happen to me? And, and in other words, it's just sort of a shift in mindset. And also you could have things like in my life where it's just having a kid was, yeah. was kind of the trigger. So look, the sooner you start, the better, just as the sooner you start saving for retirement, the, <laughs> the more money you're going to have when you retire and the more you'll be able to weather the storms of a volatile stock market, as yeah. an example. Yeah. If you wait until you're 65 to start saving, it's still worth saving if you haven't, but it's just going to be a lot. You're going to have to save a lot more money and hope for much better returns and probably have to take more risks. Right. It's interesting. Actually, somebody was asking me about this the other day. I turned 50 in September. Are we the same age? Yeah, I just turned 50. Okay. Yeah. So happy birthday. Thank you. And somebody was asking me, you know, how are you in this kind of shape at this age? And so I really started to think about it. And I was wondering, this is one of the questions I wanted to ask you. So I started committing to eating better and and really being disciplined about fitness in my late 20s. But up until that point, and then I sort of wax and waned with it. But up until that point, I was like smoking camel lights and drinking Diet Coke and, you know, like no exercise. And and then I started to get healthier. My my kind of galvanizing moment, my father was diagnosed with cancer. How old were you? I was 25, I think, when he was diagnosed. Mm. So that was sort of my first shock into, okay, wait a minute, I guess we are all mortal. <laughs> this is going to end for all of us. And, and, you know, it sort of introduced that line of thinking. 
But I would say really in my 30s after I had kids, my early 30s is when I really, it really kind of all clicked into place for me. Like I, I have to take this seriously. I, same as you. I don't want my, what happened to my father to befall me. Like I want to be healthy. And I think that my, my instinct is that because I committed to it in my 30s, I now can kind of have the strength and bone density that I have and muscle and all these things. Like, so is it important? Had I never done any of that, could I start today at 50 and achieve the kind of results? Or do you really have to start younger or does it matter? No, it does matter. You're going to reach your genetic peak pretty early in life. Um, It depends. So for bone density, for example, it's going to be your early 20s. So your bone density is going to peak in your early 20s. And we all have kind of a set potential for that. And the amount of exposure you have to lifting heavy things plays a very important role. So the type of activities you do, and there are other things that really heavily impact it, right? So if you smoke, that's going to negatively impact it. If you take, for example, someone who has severe asthma, who has to be on high doses of corticosteroids, that's going to negatively impact it. But as far as other things that you have positive control over, you know, strength training would probably be the most important thing you could do. And after that would be sort of things of impact. So if a person is inactive up until they're in their you know, mid-20s, they've already missed a window to reach their genetic ceiling. Now, if they don't decide until they're 45 that they want to start doing something about it, they're not going to be able to get their bone density any higher, but the actions they take can reduce the rate of decline. Right. So again, it comes back to this thing. It's never too late to do something about it, but we have to acknowledge that we'll always pay the fiddler one way or the other for what we you know, didn't take care of. Now, you know, I was just talking to somebody earlier about this, that the answer isn't like in your 20s, you have to be a monk, right? I think the answer is in your 20s is still a good time to create good habits. Yeah. So if, if you can say, look, I'm gonna exercise regularly, I'm gonna eat well most of the time, not all of the time, yeah. right? That's a much better position to be in than to be completely off the rails until you're 50 and then have to do something about it. Now, if you are that person and you're in your 50s and you you haven't had a life of exercise and good nutrition and all those things, you're still going to achieve great benefit from doing it. Mm-hmm. I mean, a very extreme example is smoking cessation. Within 15 years of smoking cessation, your risk of lung cancer approximately falls to that of a person who didn't smoke. Wow. Which is not to say you can't get lung cancer. 15% of people who get lung cancer never smoked. So everyone has a risk. But to think that after about 15 years, you can drop that risk significantly, that speaks to the positive as well. And the less active you were, the more benefit you'll get relative to your baseline. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. When it comes to putting together your home, a great rug can make all the difference. A rug is really what pulls a room together and creates harmony. Nordic Knots offers a curated collection of rugs and timeless high quality essentials. They collaborate with leading designers and are the insider rug brand gracing some of the world's most beautiful homes. They have a wide ranging collection, but we'll just talk about a few favorites today. The luxurious Grand Collection is known for its simple design, stunning colors, and high-quality wool. But if you're feeling a bit more bold, their designer collaborations are made with world-renowned designers and interior architects. Their Goodweave certified rugs are handmade and woven in all natural materials, 
like their super soft and beautiful New Zealand wool. At Nordic Knots, they make the process of rug shopping easy and enjoyable. And they always offer fast and free shipping from the U.S. To explore their rug collections, head to nordicknots.com. Use promo code INNERCIRCLE to get free rug samples. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Is lung cancer still, relatively speaking, an environmental cancer? Like, are you getting it from breathing in other things besides cigarettes? We don't really know beyond cigarettes. Like, clearly cigarettes are, you know, the first, second, third leading cause of lung cancer. Mm -hmm. And lung cancer is the leading cause of cancer death for both men and women. But as I said, you know... It's still the leading cancer. It is still the leading cause of cancer death. So lung cancer is number one. Breast and prostate for men and women each represent basically number two and three. And then colon, number four, pancreatic, number five. And what we don't know is why do 15% of people who die of lung cancer never smoke? Right. And why are they disproportionately women? I, I truly don't have a great point of view on this. You know, I've heard arguments that that testosterone is somewhat protective and women mm-hmm. have less testosterone than men, but I really don't know. Interesting. You know, there's some concern that, that boron, a gas exposure, might play a role in mm-hmm. this, but again, that doesn't explain the sex difference. Yeah. There's no reason to believe women would be more exposed to boron than men. Mm-hmm. So it's disconcerting because the, the lung cancer that you get if you're a non-smoker is called adenocarcinoma. It's a very lethal lung cancer. And if you if it's only caught when a person has symptoms, the likelihood of surviving mm. is very low. So the people who tend to survive this are people in whom it's caught through some incidental means. Right. So either they're proactively doing cancer screening, which is something I do and I want all my patients doing it, is just we're very aggressively mm. screening because we don't want to wait until these things show up from symptoms. Right. I have a patient in whom the lung cancer was caught doing another type of screening, doing a coronary chest CT to look at coronary arteries, and it just happened to catch something that ended up being a lung cancer, but luckily was very small, was resected, had not spread to the lymph nodes. That's a very good prognosis. You know what I did yesterday, speaking of this, is pre-nuvo. I did it yesterday, too. You're kidding me. That's incredible. Hilarious. Oh, my God. It was really, it was super fascinating. Yeah. Was that your first time doing it? Yeah, it was my first time. That was like my fifth time. I've been doing that since 2015. Really? Okay, so you have to tell me about this. So the idea that, I mean, obviously it's it, it can be cost prohibitive, right? Hopefully soon they'll be able to, you know, I guess with economies of scale, bring the price down because what an incredible baseline to have to go in and have a full body MRI and understand like where you are on the spectrum of your health. I mean, I thought it was fascinating. I had never had one and then they took me all the way through and there were like a couple little things that, but you know, we're minor, but they're yeah. like, okay, let's, you know, that's, everybody comes out with something, like some kind of finding. Yeah. But I thought this is really evidence that like this movement, the preventative movement of preventive medicine is really a foot. Yeah, it's, and there is a trade-off because the harder you look, the more you'll find things right. that, that aren't cancer. I tell our patients that, you know, if, if you go hard down the rabbit hole of early detection, the good news is if there's a cancer there, we're going to find it. And if we do, we have far better odds of successfully treating it than if it's advanced. This is unambiguous. 
the bad news is there's a very good chance we're going to find something that we're going to be worried about that ends up being nothing. So that's going to cause you some emotional distress, but it also risks more harm physically because some of the things that we're going to have to do to investigate it are invasive. Right. So for example, if we see a little lump in your thyroid gland and it's not clear if it's cancer or not cancer, the only way to find out is to put a needle in it. Right. Now, again, that's a very well-tolerated procedure, but it's not completely benign. There is a risk something goes wrong. And it gets more and more risky when those you know, potential cancers are showing up inside the body, like in your pancreas. Right. But what we have to basically do is increase the specificity of these things. I, I, I've done a few podcasts on this topic, and including with the, the chief scientific officer of Pernuvo. Oh, wow. Yeah, and he's, he's an awesome guy. I've known him for many years now, and I, I love him and you know, love what he's done with that technology. And you know, it's a, that technology is a better MRI scanner than just an off-the-shelf MRI scanner. That was That's, my next question, because they said it was an advanced MRI. So what does that mean? So <laughs> I love to talk about this stuff. I haven't figured out a great way to talk about this without <laughs> going so nerdy into physics. So if, if you'll humor me for a second, MRIs work by, this is an oversimplification, it's, a little, it's not entirely true. They work by shaking protons in your body. So that's what there's, you know how there's a magnet in there? It's mm -hmm. not radiation. So an MRI is not harmful for you. It doesn't pose any risk to you in the way that a CT scan does, where if you have too many of those, you get too much radiation. So it's using this enormous magnet to move protons in your body. And protons are primarily in fat and water, right? Water is H2O, so the H is the proton, and fat is basically CH3. So you got all the, you got all these H's in your body. By the way, did you notice you got warm? Yeah. You know why? Why? Because all those protons in your body, all that water and all that fat is moving, wow. and it's generating heat. That's fascinating. Isn't that interesting? Totally. So, Okay, so MRI technology is all about moving protons, and there's different ways that you move it, and if you move it one way, you will highlight water. So there's a T2 signal, and I don't know if you remember looking at your scans yesterday, but in one of them, everything that in your body is water lights up white. Mm -hmm. And so your biliary duct, your blood vessels, you know, all of that stuff, your cerebral spinal fluid in your spine and around your brain lights up white. Then there's a T1 weighted image where fat lights up white. That produces great anatomic contrast. Well. The special sauce of that scanner is that there's another signal, there's another series. This is really painful to talk about. <laughs> it's called diffusion-weighted imaging with background <laughs> subtraction. It's another way to shake the protons to determine how stiff the tissue is that they're in. So basically, DWI, as it's abbreviated, is a lump detector. It's a way to pretend you're feeling the tissue, but so the darker it is, the firmer it is. And that's something that previously only worked inside the head because when you think about you being in that scanner, your head was sort of fixed inside the scanner. Right. And that like you, you're, you're in like the Hannibal Lecter thing. Yes. So because your head doesn't move, it's really easy to do that type of scanning. Any type of movement creates artifact and it renders it useless. But what Raj did was come up with some software and hardware changes to a regular MRI that allows them now to do the pulsing of the diffusion weighted image so quickly that they can now do it below the neck throughout the body, even though the body can't stay as still as the head. That's amazing. And you do it once a year? I do it 
every one to two years, depending on just like, you know, convenience and because there's none in Austin. It was fascinating for me because I, I realized like, gosh, I walk around all the time imagining all this stuff is wrong with me, especially on the cognition front, because I'm 50. I'm deeply in perimenopause. I have like some I still have long COVID and mold stuff that I'm dealing with. Mm. So I was sure that there was going to be something like, you know, I was going to have like perforations in my brain or shrinkage or something like that. And it was sort of clarifying to see the inside, like all the mechanics. Inside this is the, the body. first time you saw the inside of your body. Yes. It's I pretty mean, cool, isn't it? It's incredible. I had seen, you know, imaging of my knee or this or that, but I had never seen it head to toe. But but it, it made me think like, what happens with our cognition as we age, like why does it decline? What exactly is happening? So what's happening, you know, it's interesting, right? You're asking the most important question, which is the question of function, mm -hmm. right? And age, biological age is very correlated to function, but they're not synonymous, right? There are, you can take a whole group of 60 year olds that could totally function at different levels. So the, the question is why? Why does our cognitive function decline with age outside of pathology? So there's, right. let's put pathology aside. So clearly a person can develop dementia and that will significantly impair cognition. Well, one argument on the memory side, if it's gonna make us feel a little bit better, is that, and the analogy is, when you're 20, you had a relatively small library. Mm -hmm. So when you ask the librarian to go and fetch a book, it wasn't that hard. The library wasn't that big. It was the size of this room. Right. Today, your library is the size of this floor. Right. So when you ask that librarian to go and get something, it's going to take a little longer to get it. Mm. That's, that's, that's probably a little bit of the recall issue. That said, in terms of like raw horsepower, processing speed, which might be like the most important thing that we think of as an age-dependent decline, the function of the neurons are decreasing. Now, what that means exactly, there's probably smarter people than me who can explain that. But just as we see mitochondrial function decrease, energetics decrease, right? So, so anything that's providing less energy, inducing more inflammation, all of those things will impede function. So just mm -hmm. like my muscle function today mm -hmm. is not as good as it was when I was 20, so too is my cognitive function. All of these things at the cellular level don't work as well. Mm -hmm. That's Those are the hallmarks of aging, right? All of these things like senescence, cells that basically poison adjacent cells, inflammation, reduction of mitochondrial performance, so less ability to generate mm -hmm. energy for a cell, all those things are just ticking away. And are there things that can be done to mitigate that? The big ones are exercise, right? So exercise is hands down the most important drug, if you're gonna call it that, intervention as it comes to preserving cognitive performance. And what kind? Because I know you get specific about yeah, this. Both, right? So cardio and strength training. To, to answer John Griffin. To answer John. Coming, bring it back to John. <laughs> both. And, and also even within cardio, sort of mixing it up between high intensity and low intensity. So, you know, one way that I think about it is if you were really limited in time, if you said, look, I'm only willing to spend three hours a week exercising, how would I want to optimize it? It would probably be an 
hour and a half of that time doing low intensity cardio, like zone two cardio, like say three 30 minute zone two cardios. Okay. And then one high intensity, one half an hour session of high intensity or two 15 minute high intensities, and then one hour of strength training. Like the, if that was the minimum you could do, okay. that you'd probably get the most bang for your buck in three hours of exercise. What do you do? What does your regimen look like? I do like four days a week I'm strength training, four days. Heavy weights. Yep. Four days a week. Low I'm, reps, high. N- no, I vary the reps quite a bit. Okay. I mean, I rarely go below five. So I'm probably five to 15. But sometimes, like the other day, I was doing a last set of squats, feeling very good. And I was like, I'm going to go till I'm one rep away from true failure. Right. And ended up getting like 19 reps. And then four days a week, I'm doing cardio, about an hour block. So nothing like I used to do. I mean, I used to be, you know, exercising 20 plus hours a week. And then I like to ruck. I do this thing called rucking. What's that? It's walking around with a very heavy backpack. So it's a backpack that's specifically designed to hold like, I mean, you can do it with any backpack, but the ones I use are, you know, they're, they, they're designed to hold plates of weight. So I put like, I'll have 60 pounds in the backpack and walk around. This is really awesome. Everybody should be rucking. Really? Oh yeah. I'm this is, this is the most important training tool the military uses. And why is it so important? Because it's such a great test of strength. When you're walking up and down hills, it really requires strength. Walking downhill sounds like it should be easy, but when you've got all that weight on your back and you're walking downhill, you have to be able to put the brakes on. You have to be able to control the descent. That's a really important part of aging. Most people, when they're old, this is where they fail. Mm -hmm. They don't fail stepping up onto the curb they fail stepping God, off the curb. That's a great point. I never thought of that. Yeah, we pe- people fail with the brakes. People fail with the brakes and rucking helps you maintain that. Absolutely. It trains what's called eccentric strength. Eccentric strength. So a muscle, if you think about your bicep, if you do a bicep curl right now, when you are curling up, you're shortening the muscle. That's called concentric strength. We focus a lot on that when we're in the gym. But an equally important component is how strong is the muscle when you're going down, when the bicep is getting longer. Right. So same thing with your legs. When you're stepping up onto something, the quads are shortening, the right. hamstrings are shortening. When you're coming down, they're lengthening. And most people don't have any conditioning in that part of the muscle. And as they get older, that really becomes painfully obvious. So with rucking, I'm getting strength in the concentric phase, walking up the hill, and I'm developing muscular endurance that way. And on the downhill, I'm getting all this eccentric strength. And also for me, it's a form of you know psychotherapy. So when I'm rucking, I don't have my phone. So yeah. there's no podcast, no music, no distraction, no email, no text, nothing. It's, a, it's an hour of pure bliss. And I do it at the hottest time of day in Texas. So <laughs> it's like, I'm also feel like I'm in the sauna. Wow. Yeah. You, you bring up a good point around not having the phone I, I do the same when I hike just to let the mind wander. I personally am so addicted to my phone and checking in and making sure everything's okay and everyone's okay and, and then lying in the bath and scrolling Instagram or whatever. I really feel like it's negatively impacting my mental health. Can I give you a, a tip? Yes. So I was actually going to talk about this on Instagram, the irony of it. And the irony was not lost <laughs> in me that I was going to do this on Instagram, but I'll probably still do it at some point. So a couple months ago, one of my best friends is in town. And 
I, I had a super busy day and I was so far behind on crap. And he comes over at six and the three of us, my wife, him, me, are gonna go out to dinner. So we all go out to dinner and I'm just particularly like distracted. Mm. I'm getting chirped all night on text and and I'm apologizing. I'm like, guys, I'm so sorry. I just need to make sure it's not, you know, right. blah, blah, blah. And look, text after text. And then, of course, once I'm looking at the text, I'm also checking email. So for me, social media is less the problem. It's just the work. It's yeah. the email, the text, the email, the text. And we finished dinner. We went home. And I was just so upset at myself because I was like, I was so distracted during that dinner. Mm. And, yeah, this is one of my best friends and my wife. So it's like. I don't have to have my guard up with them. Right. Like I can be my naked, shittiest version of myself. <laughs> but it was like, that's a waste. That's awful. Yeah. That's pathetic. So the next day I called my assistant and I was like, hey, I want you to go to the Apple store, get me a new iPhone and it's gonna be my bat phone and it's gonna be the phone that I go out with. And so she brings it back and it's we just take everything off it. So the bat phone has nothing on it. It's a phone. Right. Like my wife and daughter have the phone number. Right. It doesn't have email. It has text, but it doesn't matter because nobody can text it. Like right. nobody knows no the number. has the number. It doesn't have social media. It doesn't have news. It doesn't have anything. Wow. There's nothing you can do on this phone. But it has a camera, which turns out to be something I like having when I'm with oh, my kids because right. I do like to be able to take pictures of things. And it has my calendar. So I know I can take it with me if I need to be somewhere and I can put addresses in ways or whatever and do that kind of stuff. So it's a super functional wow. phone, except for the fact that I can't check email or text or social media or read the news. This is... And this thing is a game changer. Wow. So now I take the bat phone with me when I don't, when I, when I really realize I don't need to be connected, which turns out to be a lot of the time. Could you like go on a long weekend without your phone then? I mean, I haven't done that yet. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna be honest with you. That seems like, like I'd, I'd really have to make sure my team was comfortable that they are not going to get a hold of me for two days, three but days. But if you had your laptop and. Oh, yes, 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 absolutely. So if I if I had my laptop so with me so I could say, look, I'm gonna check email, I'm gonna do work for an hour. Oh yeah, absolutely. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. CarbonX is an environmental company that aims to empower people to make a positive impact on the planet. They've created a simple platform to help you make up for your carbon emissions by supporting climate-friendly projects. You can earn shareable badges based on how long you've been offsetting, and your subscription will go towards supporting new initiatives and carbon offsetting projects that have been independently verified to have removed CO2 from the atmosphere. You can choose a project that is meaningful to you, such as planting trees in deforested regions of the Amazon and investing in energy-efficient and renewable resources around the world. For the Goop podcast team, CarbonX wanted to cover our team's carbon footprint. They donated a subscription for us to support an energy-efficient cook stoves program in Uganda. To learn more about CarbonX, head to their website at carbonx.com. That's carbon with a K-X.com or download the CarbonX app. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. So can we just go back to mitochondrial function for a second? So after exercise, what is the next best mitigant? For cognitive health? Yeah. For a person who's not sleeping well, fixing that. Fixing sleep. Yeah, fixing sleep. So if you're okay. not, 
in that seven to nine window, seven to nine hours of sleep, that you've got to get that right. And unfortunately, a lot of people are not sleeping well. So either they're just not sleeping long enough, or they're sleeping in a fragmented way, or they're using chemicals that are not productive to sleep to help. So there are chemicals that help you sleep by preserving sleep architecture. There are chemicals that help you lose consciousness that don't preserve architecture. You want to be using the former and not the latter. And what are examples of the former? Like melatonin? No, melatonin is something that one needs to be very careful with Mm -hmm. above certain levels. So at a low dose, which I think is, the data would suggest below about 750 micrograms, I would say even lower than that. I would say 300 micrograms is a safe dose if you really felt you wanted to use it daily. I personally think it makes no sense to use melatonin on a daily basis. Melatonin should really only be used in extreme cases like severe jet lag. Yeah, that's when I use it. Yeah, that's the only time I use it as well, is if I'm gonna be going seven time zones and I need to pull out all the stops to make myself (laughs) go to bed at 2 p.m., that I'm blasting myself with three milligrams of melatonin, which is like, I think, 10 times an appropriate physiologic dose. But if you're just saying, like, I'm a person who's gonna just use melatonin on a nightly basis, I would say, no, use light. Mm-hmm. Light is the key to melatonin. So use the appropriate signals of light and absence of light to trigger that melatonin. Like your pal Huberman talks about this yeah, all the Andrew, time. Yeah, Andrew, of course, is like, you know, this is his literally his area of expertise. Other supplements that I think are very helpful, I use glycine, mm-hmm. uh, and I use quite a bit of it. I use two to three grams of glycine, and I use probably 600 milligrams of ashwagandha. And that's good for someone like me. You know, it's sort of a, a way to tamp down cortisol levels. So. Right. Cortisol, adenosine, and melatonin are basically the three things you're regulating to sleep. So you have to get cortisol down, melatonin up, and adenosine has to be high so that you can squash it, right? In other words, you you want the pressure of adenosine to make you tired. Mm. So that's why napping is a bad idea, right? A nap in the middle of the day, even if it's just a 20-minute cat nap, can deplete you of adenosine, makes it harder for you to sleep at night. Robs so you of the sleep pressure to go to bed. Everybody says naps are so good for you. I can't nap. Yeah, I mean, okay. it depends on the context, right? If if you're in a situation like, let's say you're a mom and you just had a baby, and that of baby course. is like, then yes, of course, by all means, right. like, na- if the if the alternative to not napping is not sleeping, then napping makes sense. But but we don't we don't want our patients napping, right? We want our patients getting the full. You know, Eight hours. Set of, yeah, and and again, it's it's you know, sleep trackers have given people a little bit of visibility into what I guess sleep scientists have known all along, which is if you're in bed for eight hours, you're probably sleeping for seven, yeah, a little over seven, because you know it's not a perfectly efficient process, and most people are going to be requiring seven to nine hours of sleep. Yeah. So we think that if you're in bed for eight hours, there's a very good chance that you're getting the right amount of sleep, and then on top of that, you can. You know, there are a bunch of sleep surveys that I think I linked to some of them in the book where a person can just go and do an assessment online to get a sense of what their level of sleep quality is. So like something like the Epworth sleep scale, there's a, a, a sleep survey out of Pittsburgh, the University of Pittsburgh, that's very well validated. And if you go through these surveys and you're, you know, you're sleeping eight hours a night and you don't score any red flags on those or your scores come out fine, then you're great. You don't need to stress about that. There's, you know, there's no benefit to sleeping more. Right. But if you're, if you're not doing well on that, fixing that is also an enormous part of cognition. But I feel like so many people struggle with this idea of like, I know I should sleep better, but I can't, like I'm not a natural sleeper. That's a refrain that I hear all the time. Yeah, I think, I think that's probably not correct. I mean, I think that's probably a narrative that more reflects you're not, you as the individual who's saying that are not creating a good enough environment for mm-hmm. sleep. 
it seems counterintuitive that we should have to spend a third of our lives unconscious. Like it seems like such a bad idea. <laughs> I certainly rejected it for a long time, but the, you know, the data are overwhelming that sleep is important. And, and then on top of that, there's just sort of the evolutionary argument, right? Which is there's no species we're aware of that doesn't sleep. And given how unproductive and dangerous sleep would have been to our species, like you're not mating, you're not foraging for food and you're not protecting yourself. Those are kind of the only three things evolution cared about. Right. So why did evolution not get rid of the fact that for a third of our time we're doing <laughs> that? It must be important. It must be too important for evolution mm. to get rid of. So when, you know, when people suggest today that they don't need to sleep that much and I, or that, yeah, I just sleep doesn't work for me. I have a hard time sleeping. Yes, there may be some pathology there that needs to be addressed. Maybe you have sleep apnea. Maybe you have your restless leg syndrome. And those absolutely need to be addressed with the proper doctor. Mm. But I do think that for most people, it comes down to what are you doing for sleep hygiene? How consistent are you in bedtime and wake up time? How dark is your room? How cold is your room? How much distance are you putting between stimulation and sleep? Mm. You, know, you have to make the environment conducive to sleep. Okay. And then after that on the list? I would say, so we have much more information around res reducing the risk of dementia. That's where we have the most data. And that's not exactly the same thing as the question you're asking, right. which is improving cognition. So I think for improving cognition, clearly those two things matter a lot. Okay. They also matter a lot on reducing the risk of disease. When you start to also talk about other things that reduce the risk of disease, not having diabetes. Right. And I would have to believe that not having diabetes also improves cognitive mm -hmm. performance outside of dementia. And not having diabetes, another way to say that is being insulin sensitive and metabolically healthy. So the brain is a super energy demanding organ. Mm -hmm. So again, 2% of your body weight, 20 to 25% of your energy requirement. It's crazy. It's insane. It's insane that this tiny little organ that weighs nothing is an energy consuming machine. So by extension, anything that interrupts energy production is going to be bad. Mm. Anything that disrupts fuel partitioning, which is just a fancy way of explaining how the body knows what to do with energy, where to put it, is, is gonna be problematic. And diabetes is just the most extreme version of a deficiency or a defective fuel partitioning system. But long before you have type two diabetes, you're insulin resistant, you have hyperinsulinemia, all of those things impair mm. the ability to get energy safely and adequately to the brain. So not having those things matters, right? So being metabolically healthy. At least when it comes to, you asked about supplements, I think the best evidence we have around supplements is around B vitamins in the reduction of homocysteine. So there's a mm -hmm. clinical trial done called the VitaCog study that looked at people with what's called mild cognitive impairment, MCI. So this is pre-dementia. So these people do not have Alzheimer's disease or dementia, but they're already demonstrating objective signs of cognitive impairment. So that's the, that's the funnel through which people go to dementia. It's also a place where we think there's an ability to stop the, stop the train, maybe even some evidence of reversal. Wow. Um, and this study looked at using something as simple as methylated B vitamins and B vitamins to lower homocysteine. Mm. And in the people in whom homocysteine was lowered the most, you had the best outcomes. I, I find it to be one of the most frustrating things that that study, which was a very well done study, did not get more attention mm. because there's like a, you know, a graveyard of drugs that have had no benefit in Alzheimer's disease. And to think that if we just got everybody's homocysteine down to eight or nine, 
we could reduce their risk of dementia and potentially improve cognition, although that was never tested, you know, I think is sort of crazy. Again, mm. you know, it's, I don't take a million supplements, but I definitely take methylated B vitamins. Do you guinea pig on yourself a lot? Do you tend to do that? In some things, I definitely love to guinea pig technology. Right. Right. Like, I mean, I was wearing a continuous glucose monitor starting in 2015. That's um, early. I was wearing, you know, EKG leads on my chest <laughs> all day for like heart rate variability checking in 2013, 2014. Like this thing was, this, what was the thing called? It was called First Beat. It was so user hostile. Like you had, you literally stuck these leads to your chest and you would wear this thing for days and it would tear the skin off your chest. Oh my God. So I, for a couple of years, had these white marks on oh my chest no. from all the skin being torn off. <laughs> this is not worth because, it. Because like if you were someone who exercised a lot, you wanted to wear it. Like they had two versions. They had the not so sticky and the very sticky. But I'm like, dude, I'm exercising all day. You need the I need sticky. the super sticky. And the super sticky just ripped your skin off. Oh my God. So yeah, yeah. I, I've always like been. You're into like data collection. I want to know. I want to know stuff before okay. it's user friendly. But but that said, like I have a pretty low level of confidence in the unregulated supplement market. So, mm -hmm. you know, like you mentioned Andrew, one of my closest friends. I mean, Andrew and I will talk about supplements all day long and he'll be like, "Well, what about this and what about this?" and I'll be like, "Andrew, like I don't know who's making it. Like maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but it's like probably crushed bird feathers." So, <laughs> And, and so at best it doesn't work, but at worst it's got something in it that, that could be dangerous. So, yeah. you know, I have a slightly higher tolerance for, you know, certain things than others. But, but I would say, you know, when it comes to supplements, like there's three or four companies that I, I trust make a good quality product. So I, I at least feel I'm free of contamination. But I also think like most supplements don't do anything. Mm. If you're lucky, that's the worst thing is that they're, they're doing, right. the, the, the best case is they're doing nothing. I mean, I guess if you have like a blood panel and it tells you you're low in iron, you're low in vitamin B, right? Then in those cases. That's right. So I, I definitely am more optimistic around supplements for which we have biomarkers. Right. So for example, like vitamin D, which there's actually still a lot of controversy about supplementing vitamin D and whether it has health benefits or not. But the reality is that question has not been appropriately tested. So I would say we do not know the answer to whether supplementing with vitamin D is beneficial. And how do you appropriately test for that? So here's what the problem is. All those studies have been done as, let's just take a bunch of people who have low vitamin D and give them 2000 IU of vitamin D and in five years, see if there's any difference in health outcomes. Hmm. What's the problem with that study? There's a lot. First, do you know who took the test? Do you know who took the vitamin D or not? We never measured the levels again. Was 2000 IU enough? Almost assuredly not. So, so, so a way to do that test correctly or to do that experiment correctly would be, let's take a bunch of people whose vitamin D level is low. Let's define it as below 30 as an example. Let's give them whatever amount of vitamin D is necessary to get their level above, say, 60 and below 80. So we're going to say the treatment group, we're going to give whatever amount of vitamin D is needed to get their vitamin D to 60 to 90. The placebo group will keep below 30. But we're going to check the actual biomarker to know that. And then we run that out for the sufficient period of time. Maybe we think that's five years. And then the question is, what is the population of interest? So I don't to be honest with you, I don't know enough about vitamin D to know if your best bet is going to be studying perimenopausal women for whom bone density is the biggest issue. Maybe that's the right population. Right. Is it going to be some other population? What's your primary outcome? But 
the way it's been studied to date, I think has never answered the question. Mm. That said, vitamin D is at least a supplement where you have a biomarker. The same with B vitamins. B vitamins, you can measure them. You can also measure what you really care about, which is the effect on homocysteine. There's other supplements for which we have no biomarker, or at least we don't have one that matters, like magnesium. I'm a big proponent of magnesium. I think most people are really magnesium deficient, and I'm not even convinced that the blood test that we use, which is red blood cell membrane magnesium levels, are the best outcome. But but symptom-wise, most people get better with more magnesium, mm -hmm. right? So on the on the slow-acting side, you get less cramping. On the fast-acting, like poorly absorbed side, you get better bowel function and regularity. Yeah. So that's one where I don't think I need a biomarker, but I'm sort of comfortable titrating based on the data that we have. And, and you mentioned ashwagandha earlier, yeah. which... Again, this is one where, yeah, it's like, Peter, why are you taking ashwagandha? I mean, it's empirical to me. It's right. like, one, I'm taking it from a company that I really like. It's called Gero. I think they make very good supplements, super high quality. And two, just empirically, I tinker so much with my sleep. I do use sleep trackers and after years and years of tinkering, whatever routine I'm on now, which is not just about any one supplement, but it's working very well. It's giving me That's the results cool. I want, both in terms of how I feel and whatever objective metrics I can measure. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Okay, so I'd like to bring it back around to the book and this idea of outliving and you know for me it would be outliving my father mm. you know that's part of the turning 50 and freaking out like when you lose your father my father died when he was 58 and the book is like it's i'm not finished with it yet it's going to take me it's like the most brilliant academic dense <laughs> tome but sort of to summarize you know what are the and I, I think we've talked about a lot of them here today right kind of like the because whether you're talking about sleep, exercise, but are there other things we're missing in terms of like when you're talking about biohacking or if you're focused on living the best possible life of the best quality for as long as possible, what else? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I think one way to maybe get at that is to to talk about the evolution in my thinking over the course of writing this book. So yeah. if you go back to everything from the email to John to the you know, the, the, the longevity manifesto to the first version of this book, none of that is in this current book, right? The, the, the whole process has evolved and it's, it's a reflection of kind of my thinking about this. So mm -hmm. I think that the, the version of this book that I started writing was the biohacking Silicon Valley, how to not die book. Right. And then through 
stuff that I do write about at the end of the book, there's been a total change in my thinking about this. And really, this is now a book about living. I know that sounds very cheesy, but it really reflects how I feel. It went from a book of how to avoid dying or at least delay it as much as possible to how to live the best version of your life. And for me, that's really not a biohacking problem. Mm. It is about all the things we've talked about. So there's part of living your best life is not dying prematurely, (laughs) but an equally important part of it is based on the quality of your life, that health span thing. And I think the piece, at least for me, that was the biggest change over the past decade is the is everything that has to do with emotional health. Without that, none of this stuff really matters. And that's that's the squishiest stuff. You don't have yeah. biomarkers for that. But if anybody's being really honest with themselves, it's also not something that for which there's much confusion if it's not going well. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're if you can really be honest with yourself about it. So are you talking about kind of I don't know, creating a a rubric for yourself of how to process through things to to really be like tools to be your most authentic self like what are your ways of achieving emotional health i mean it start you know the there was you know an enormous amount of work that had to be done in in sort of residential care i mean i went into therapy in 2017 for 2 weeks and then in 2020 for 3 weeks so these were places where i was like locked up right and almost against my will truthfully wow. and those were probably the two most important you know steps in my transformation, if you will. And I would say coming out of, so it's almost exactly three years ago, actually. In fact, exactly three years ago, I was in PCS, Psychological Counseling Services, the place in Phoenix, Arizona that I went to. I was there from like mid-April till early May. And coming out of that, yes, I mean, there were dramatic changes. Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't be unlike if you just came out of the hospital having had surgery, what would your care plan look like? Right. It was very mm-hmm. intense. Three years later, you're probably still doing, if you're really smart, you're still probably still doing some PT for that injury to make sure you don't get injured again. Yeah. But you're not doing like the volume of PT you were doing when you came out. So similarly, when I came out of that place three years ago, I mean, I was still doing therapy every single day. I was journaling every day. I was standing in front of a mirror twice a day, reading affirmations. I mean, I was going wow. through, you know, I was putting hours a week into you know doing the things that were necessary to kind of break the old habits and build new habits break the old belief system build a new belief system i mean just one example you know changing the inner monologue mm. so every time i did something that would have previously thrown me into a fit of rage screaming at myself i would take out my phone and i would record into it a message as though it was my friend who had made the mistake I made. So I would instead speak very kindly to myself and then send that to my therapist. So like I'm sending five of these messages a day for four or five months. And little by little, all of that stuff sort of melted away. So today I don't have to do that. I don't, I don't record anything anymore, but I don't need to because there is like plasticity in that system. So it sort of shifted. So Today, this is still a very important part of how I think about mm. interacting with the world. So I still do therapy, of course. I, I, I'm, I'm a, an enormous fan of something called dialectical behavioral therapy. And now I just have better tools to cope with my mistakes and better mm. tools to recognize when I'm not in harmony mm-hmm. and better tools to recognize 
you know, when I need to repair something. Mm. I think I need to go there. (laughs) Peter, thank you so much for being here today. And it's been such an honor to have you. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode with Peter Atia. I hope you pick up a copy of his fascinating book, Outlive. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.